Well, hey there, everyone, and welcome back to episode 75 of Game Store Profits, the show where geeks get together to talk about God. My name is Luke Navarro. And my name is Mike Perna. Really, we get together to talk about board games. God Usually. just sort of slips in there somehow. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. No, we. I, I always say that we do a, a nice, smooth transition. The, the question isn't whether we make that transition. It's the question of, is it going to be... 15 minutes in, or is it, or is it going to be, we've got 10 minutes left, what are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. so and, uh, how are you doing? I am, I am uh, simmering, I'm uh, lightly barbecuing <laughs> myself right now. Uh, <laughs> last night I went to bed, and it was 82 degrees. <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, from all those, from all those times that you were talking about, oh, it's 75 and sunny here, when I'm either freezing or burning... I will take this because it's actually quite cool outside. I get right it. Now. I get it. I understand that. Okay, <laughs> but I would just like to say I have no idea whether global warming is in fact a reality. Okay, and I don't have a horse in the race. I don't care. <laughs> but I spend a freaking fortune to live in California so that it can be seventy-five all <laughs> the time. So if this global warming thing is happening, folks. Get yourself a Prius, okay? <laughs> Stop running your air conditioners and your heaters and your... You, there's too many cows that are pooping up into the air, whatever that they're cows. doing. <laughs> I've had enough of this, okay? Uh, you know, every once in a while, we start one of these episodes and we think, you know, this is going to be a good one. It's probably going to be a little bit of insane, but it's going to be good. When I get to hear you start off by saying, I don't know if global warming is real, but too many cows are pooping in the atmosphere, this is going to be a special one. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have a title. <laughs> too many cows. Too many cows. So, man, what you been up to? Uh, well, I quite literally just walked in the door a minute ago because I dropped my wife off because she is a bridesmaid at a wedding. Okay. Apparently you don't like them. <laughs> No. Well, if it involves a second plane ticket, that's that's uh No, no, no. Being it, it's it is local, so there is that is definitely a benefit. But no, being in a wedding party is a whole other level of commitment than Fair. just going to a wedding. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. She's got to be there for rehearsals and practices and Right. Things that's of why the we sorts. were there. That's why we were there tonight because tonight was the rehearsal. Gotcha. We'll be back gotcha. there tomorrow. And as it stands, I'm I'm not going to be able to cuddle with my wife tonight because she is going to be in a hotel room filled with other ladies talking about doing their hair in the morning. And okay. so Yeah. Well, we're, we're dual bacheloring it we're, then tonight this, despite the fact that I actually I have two small children in the house. But uh, this is probably why the episode started out so crazy, because, you know, we have the ability to be loud and raucous and talking about pooping cows. There you go. There you go. Typically don't do that around the lady folks. Sorry, True. lady. But folks. as as far as as far as actually gaming, which is, you know, what we talk about, I, I it's the, the recurring theme here. But I will say that I've been really excited about the Netrunner deck that I've just made. OK, what, which deck is this? It. You know, I, I try to make decks that have themes, and when I, right. I make a deck that has a theme... The, themes I, like narrative themes, or themes like in-game, I'm going to rip your soul apart themes? It's a little of both, really. Sometimes it's more story, sometimes it's more... it. You know, if there's a, a, a mechanical theme that goes along, like, this works with this, which does this. Like, I have, I have one 
I actually have one of both. One of both as an example. I have a runner deck. It is entirely shaper. And the shapers in one of the newer expansions have two little bits of icebreakers, which are called Alpha and Omega. Right. And so I have pretty much themed that entire deck around getting out Alpha and Omega because Alpha lets you break the outermost uh, piece of ice, regardless of what it is. And then Omega busts the uh, innermost piece of ice regardless of what it is and so i basically have a deck that gets a lot of money gets both of them out and if i don't see them i have a lot of cards that let me go through the deck to try and find them right i also you know that was that's mechanical everything is about getting alpha and omega out onto the field as far as narrative is concerned i have a corp i have a corp deck which is wayland and nbn so naturally I think, huh, an evil corporation that is tied together with a news organization. So clearly I've named this deck Fox News. <laughs> so, and Fox News is basically, you know, all this shady business behind the scenes. And then Fox News puts out some kind of ridiculous message and a lot of things go crazy. So that that's Fox News. So that's my narrative one. So that gives you an idea of kind of how how I run things. Well, this one, I kind of went a little bit, I don't know, we'll call it esoteric on, on this last one, because uh, the I, I posted up in a couple different places on, on Facebook and stuff, but I'm very, I'm very fortunate. Every Thursday night, well, most Thursday nights anyway, uh, I play with a buddy of mine. Uh, he and I, pretty much, he comes over, we play Netrunner for a couple of hours, that's pretty much our Thursday night. Well, he up and got himself Honor and Profit, which is the newest... Deluxe right. expansion for Netrunner. It is in, it's a, a bigger one, and the bigger ones focus on two factions, one on each side of the conflict. So this one is, uh, the corporation is Jinteki, and the runners are the criminals. I've wanted to do a Jinteki deck since I got my core set. Because Jinteki is all about... They're the honor in honor and profit, but they're they're all very samurai esque. Like they they have ice called like neural katana, and everything is about this samurai. It's like this bushido kind of code, which is I'm going to slaughter you in the name of justice and honor. Like I wanted a Jinteki deck so bad, but every time I've tried to make one, it fails so horribly. <laughs> but with honor and profit, I go. I can do it now. I have a huge pile of cards and a lot of different tools to do awesome stuff. So I asked myself, you know, how do I want to do this? What kind of, you know, mechanics and theme do I want to go with here? And oddly enough, I created a Jinteki and Hospiroid. For those of you who don't know this game, I, you know, Jinteki, very Bushido, very I'm going to slaughter you in your sleep kind of thing. Hospiroid is all about uh, androids and cybernetics and they're the guys who build the future. So robots and causing pain. So I go, huh. I named this deck Rule Breaker. And the reason I call it Rule Breaker is because it goes about breaking every one of Asimov's rules of robotics. Oh. <laughs> it breaks all of them. You know, 
a, a robot cannot do harm to a human. A robot must obey all orders unless it, you know, unless those orders break rule one. And I forget how the third one's worded, but it's all it's all a whole lot about do not do harm to yourself or to humans. Yeah, uh, rule breaker. If you step to rule breaker, you will run, and you will come to harm. There will be much much harm. <laughs> At least I think, because I haven't tested it yet. So, we'll see. But that crafting that and, and playing with these decks, you know, so much of Netrunner, because the collectible thing isn't necessarily there, I mean, it is to a degree, but we've said in the past, living card games are more about buy this set to get these cards, and you know that if you buy that, you'll get that. Right. So, it's it's more about experimenting and playing and... And trying to find out how you want to play. Like Alpha and Omega, I love that deck. Uh, it doesn't always win. Because it has its weaknesses. And if you if you exploit those weaknesses, you can tear it apart. But I also think that's part of the deal. Like I like the experimenting with it. And trying to figure out how to, how to tweak things. And how to you know, do things to subvert what the other side is doing. And, you know, I like... I like tweaking and changing alpha and omega is right where it needs to be fox news is a little tweaking and like i said rule breaker has not been tested yet so i'm really looking forward to, to playing some more net runners but i'm what i'm trying to say <laughs> nice. nice how have you been have, have you gotten much net runner in i know you picked up a core set uh you know i, I really haven't i don't know that if i mentioned it on the show before, but for a very complex and stupid reasons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of housebound for about a month, and that happened, like, almost immediately after I started playing Netrunner. And so I haven't... Um, I'll probably play at least a, a game or two uh, at KublaCon coming up next weekend. Uh, but because I'm going to KublaCon next weekend, I also haven't been doing very much gaming up until that point, you know, it's kind of one of those things where saving it all up. (laughs) Well, and it's one of those things where like, if I'm going to spend three days doing that, I got to spend some time doing other things. That's very true because like, I'm, I'm gearing up for Gen Con because they just announced all of the events at Gen Con. And I've discovered that my Friday will be very busy. (laughs) Okay. Apparently a lot of the things I want to do are happening on Friday. Like, uh, we're going to have the, the faith and gaming panel is happening on Friday. I want to get in a game of Numenera because I can't convince local players to play with me, so I need to basically go in, get a game, get really comfortable with the system, and come back with tales of glory and wonder that I might share with these people so that they'll actually say, huh, that sounds kind of fun. Hey kids, Future Mike here with a slight update onto what we were saying here before. Now, when this episode got recorded, it was before they actually released the event registration so they had all everything posted they had all the schedules up and i figured i'd have a day to you know get in and buy tickets for what i wanted and got you know where i needed to be yeah event registration was overbooked within like an hour so on the bad side my friday is significantly more open there a lot of the events that i wanted to get into i really couldn't because all the tickets got bum rushed almost immediately on the plus side however that means that if you're at gen con the likelihood of you finding me at the booth is going to be significantly higher and i have stated that one of my goals is to find 
somebody who listens to us, one of the, you know, if you're at the, our Facebook group, The Tavern, if you're one of my regulars, I want to play a game with you. So we're going to be at Booth 160. You're going to hear me say that a lot between now and August, but I'm going to say it again. Booth 160 is where I'm going to be hanging out. Find me, because I want to play games with you guys. I want to meet you guys. I really look forward to seeing you there in Indy. So I'm going to turn that around and not be upset about all the things that I couldn't get into, like the fact that all of the Numenera games got sold out. That being said, we will return you to your regularly scheduled Mike and Luke. I mean, these games, they do take, and we've talked about this principle before, and it's it's about the degree of investment required. And even though, with depending on the system, uh, some role-playing games really don't require all that much investment from your players, it feels like they would. Right. And so then it's like, oh, do I really want to try to remember another system? And I've got all these other systems in my head. It's kind of like, you know, I, I always compare it with miniature war games. You're not going to be able to keep the rules straight if you're playing three different war games, especially if they're set in the same period. Right. Like, okay, yeah, I might be able to play one fantasy game and one sci-fi game and one modern game and remember all of the little minutia of all of the rules, but if I try to play three different sci-fi skirmish games... I'm going to be rolling the dice for the wrong system. And I'm going to be planning my tactics for the wrong system. And so it's tough. The sad thing is, is that with role-playing games, that's such a small part of the actual game. It really, really is. Especially with a very story-driven, very GM-driven... I, I might have mentioned this in past episodes, but to you know, in case you're, you're new to the show... I do want to mention a little bit, Numenera is a system, it's a science fantasy system set in the far, far, like, billion years in the future Earth, where things kind of don't look anything like they do now. And there's there's this thing called a GM intrusion, and it's not something that happens all the time, but it's pretty much, if you want something to happen, you basically step in to the system, and you, like, point to somebody and be like, hey... Like you know, it's it's science fantasy. So say they're walking through this this elaborate system of tunnels, and you go, "Hey, Bob, you see a shiny red button, and it's as if that shiny red button is calling out to you." <laughs> you really need to push this, <laughs> right? So Bob has two options. Bob can take experience, and actually, what's really cool, Bob could then not only take experience for himself, but also give it to another player. And and just kind of embrace the GM's story point based on the shiny red button. Or he can spend experience to say, you know, I, I think better of that button. I once pushed a button and it got me into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm going to avoid... And, but that costs experience and everything like So it you have a moment where you can step... As the GM can step into the story and say, I really want this thing to happen. So it, it's really cool that, you know, as a GM, you don't have to put the... You're, you're not taking away the agency from your players. They're still very much a part of it, and they have the ability to say, screw you, I don't want to go down that road. But it, it gives you that little bit of, but this road is really cool, and you want to go down it. So it even it even takes away a lot of that responsibility of the player to to really have this huge uber, you know, I get why that would be. 
And I get why we would need that, because I've, I have DM, GM, whatever you want to say, games with players who I swear are just obstinate. Mm. They don't want to do whatever it is that you have planned. But, you know what, man? That's a crap way to play a game. And yep. you know what, man? It's a crap way to live. <laughs> Life is better when you say yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And playing a game like that is better when you say yes. Yeah, and it's it's really it's really good that it rewards you for it. It's not just saying, oh, I have to do what the GM tells me to because he's the GM and he told me to. You do get experience, and you do get to see cool stuff, and and it's worked into the system. It's not just like that one GM that one time came up with this cool thing. It's built into the system for that to happen. But yeah, so I... I'm I'm looking forward to Gen Con. I really am excited about it this year because, you know, it was cool. It was an otherworldly experience going there last year. And last year I didn't know what was what was going to happen. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't right. know what to avoid. Right. So, now you're so, not a rookie so much anymore. Right. And so, you know, I I'm really looking forward to to seeing what's going to be there and to and to rep inroads and to uh just be a part of stuff. Like I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of the fact that Derek has asked me to host the faith and gaming panel. I still don't know how that happened. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? I mean, look, we don't want to be prideful, but we have mentioned in the past that there are not too many of us out there doing this kind of thing. No, there are more than when we started, but there still aren't many. Right. And uh, so I think it's kind of appropriate in a way, you know, and uh, now remind me again when this is. It's the middle of August. Yeah. So you still got quite a while to uh, to dwell on these things and to print stickers like they're going out of style and yeah, that kind of thing. August 14th through 17th. OK. Well, like I said, I'm going to Kubla next weekend as we were recording last weekend as you are listening to this. Um, and I'm excited about it. Uh, one reason I'm excited about it is because this year I'm going to be there at Gate Open. Oh, man. Which is nice, because last year I didn't get there till the second day, and everything cool was gone. <laughs> I was about to say, because Kuba's, Kuba's a smaller con, so I imagine the, the people it's, bring less stuff. Right, it's pretty small. I don't actually know... I'm sure somewhere on their website they say like how many awesome people there are there, but I can't... I can't. I couldn't even guess. I'd say twenty thousand, maybe. But I'm just completely making that number up. Well, and when you think, I mean, that sounds like it's a huge number, but you know, then you get Gen Con, which is fifty thousand. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's not small. Like it's at the local college gymnasium. Small. It's it's not in somebody's garage. Right, but it's not big like, hey, people fly here for this right? kind of a thing. Even still, I'm excited, and you know what I'm most excited about? There are, I don't know why, maybe this is just, maybe it's a trend, I don't know, but so many of the role-playing game sessions are all piratey. <laughs> And I've there's never a, there's a done a pirate theme going on. Yeah, there is. And I have never done a pirate role playing game other than maybe Pirates in Space, but like Yar and Matey and Taste the Blade of My Cutlass and things like that. <laughs> uh, I have never done this. And so I I'm uh, I'm really hoping to do that. Uh 
I don't know about other conventions. I don't know how it works. Uh, KublaCon uses something they call the shuffler, which okay. is a weighted system where you can ask for a slot in a game. Now, this is only a small, tiny, tiny percentage of the games that are there. Uh, but the games that are, like, really popular, you can say, I, you sign up ahead of time online, and you say, like, during this section, this is my first choice, this is my second choice, this is my third choice. And it does some crazy mathematical algorithm that apparently makes it fair. Um, right. <laughs> and so it, it's... Uh, it's randomized, I guess. Random is probably not the most accurate, correct word right now, but it's a lottery. How about that? Right. Uh, as to whether you get into these games or not. Um, however, I should be able to play at least one of them, I hope. That, and then there's board games. And um, this year is kind of cool. We're, some of our local gaming group is we're all going together, or we're all going at the same time, or we're all going to be there, or however you would say that. You will occupy... The uh, similar space at the yes. similar time. <laughs> uh, so there is a strong likelihood that we will descend upon the giant game library, suck as much goodness as we can out of it, <laughs> and then go lock ourselves in a corner with uh, soda pop and uh, sugary things and play until we're shaking. <laughs> nice. Uh, but, you know, that uh, that should be a whole lot of fun. I have gotten some gaming in, though. Recently. You've gotten you've gotten more gaming in than I have. Uh, I played a game that I think you would be interested in, um, called Steam Park. Oh, making a theme park for robots! I want theme that so park bad for robots. So you, you explained basically the premise of the game. There it is. Yeah, you are literally uh, crafting a theme park for robots. What what more do you need? So each player gets a little grid, and it's uh, I think it's four by four to start with. Uh, you can buy two by two extensions as the game plays on, and you're building, and they're little three D. Uh, if you can imagine, like th- thick cardboard that you have to kind of assemble uh, when you buy but the game. They're kind of hard to explain. The best way I could talk about it would be to point you to go to on YouTube, go to the Dice Towers uh, review because he go he shows each one of them, and they look really cool but they're kind of hard to explain without making them sound a lot cheesier than they are. They're, oh, they're, they're solid, and they're nice. Um, for those of you who uh, have ever, in a miniature war game, purchased paper scenery, uh, paper buildings, and when I say paper, you know I don't actually mean paper. They're, they're thick cardstock that you can cut out and hook together origami-style it's not origami, origami's folding, but whatever. I'm having a hard time today. Uh, and it makes stuff. And basically what it does is the game, uh, you have different buildings. Uh, I think it's three, two, and one in size. Uh, they're different colors, maybe five or six different colors. And then there's some uh, little stations, little stands. stands. Uh, your info booth and your bathroom, stuff like that. That you can also put in your park. But here's the, the, the two rubs to this game. The first one is that... Things get dirty. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, the, the, that the placement is really, really constrained. Basically, nothing can touch anything different. So a purple building cannot touch a red building, cannot touch a stand. Everything is very separate, which makes sense when you think about it. You have to have walkways. 
You can't just pile stuff up in an amusement park. Uh, Also, like you said, the uh, the robots are dirty. So your goal is to put down buildings and get the robots on the rides. But everything you do causes dirt. Having robots on rides causes dirt. And dirt at the end of the game is uh, minus victory points. Well, isn't it if you get so much dirt, you automatically lose, I think I heard was one of the rules? Uh, No, but it scales insanely. It's like an expositional. Okay, maybe. I think you're right. Maybe if you get like 50 dirt, something insane, you lose. But it would, first off, it would be hard to ever get that much. Like, you'd have to try to get that much. Um, But second off, if you get like 48 dirt, the cost in victory points is... So, in the victory points is money, but is so astronomical that you'd just be doomed. Um, now, the mechanism in the game is one that I generally hate, and I will explain why in a moment. It is rapid dice rolling. Okay, okay. So, you're, you're flinging dice. Uh, each one has the dice have various, you know, build something get a person, clean up dirt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And you're rolling your dice trying to get the combination that you want. The first person who finishes up their dice, this is all happening at the same time, first person who gets their dice reaches out, grabs a little card that indicates, hey, you're the first person, uh, and as an advantage, you get to clean up a little bit more of your dirt this round. The second person cleans up a little less. The third person gets too much dirt. Or maybe it's the third person neutral, fourth person gets a bunch of dirt, whatever. Uh, So you're rolling dice like a crazy person. Um, And then uh, the other randomization mechanism is when you try to get robots to attend your park, it's a reach in the bag and pull out the robot deal. Which makes sense. You, You don't get to say who comes to your amusement park. You just have to hope that it's the right person who likes that kind of ride. And purple players can get on purple rides, and pink players can get on pink rides, and some things can change the rules a little bit. Very fun game. Way thinkier than you would think. It sounds kind of just like a silly, stupid thing, making roller coasters for robots. Um, But here's my problem with all games of this ilk. I cannot, to save my life, Keep the dice on, on the, the table. table. I don't understand why. I'm not bad at this. I don't normally just fling dice across the room. <laughs> but something about the speed dicing, I, my hand goes wackadoodle and the dice goes flying across the room. And I but end up you, going you and chasing it. And I'm not like. I have to roll these quickly. <laughs> and I'm not like lithe and nimble. Okay? <laughs> Remember, folks? GameStoreProfits.com. Look at the picture. Real life picture. Not animation. That's actually us. That's actually us. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so... But otherwise, it was an awful lot of fun. And uh, and a fun, cute little theme, too. Suddenly, there's a whole bunch of people that are racing to the website to find out that we aren't actually dwarves. Sorry, as much as, as, much as we claim to be, we aren't actually dwarves. So, uh, so I played that. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I would absolutely play it again. And you know, I could totally see you owning this game. I, and yeah, cost well, is the only reason I don't own this oh, game. Yeah, I have no idea how much it costs. It probably is expensive. It's got pretty nice components. Um, I, I remember it, it being like not 
overly expensive for a board game. So it's not like it's a deal breaker. It's just my budget currently. Right. It lives currently outside of my budget. Yeah, well, part of it is that, you know, it's a steampunk thing, even though it's, it has the vibe. But it, but it, now it would have been cooler if the meeples were better. Like if they had little top hats or something. Um, <laughs> oh, but, I now want to make meeples with top hats. <laughs> uh, but it's the kind of game you like very social game. Oh, yeah. Uh, even though, you know, you're, you're staring down, rolling the dice, there's something about doing everything together that just kind of brings people uh, br- brings people together a little bit. Speaking of social games, another game I've played, and this is actually the first time for me, is the Resistance Avalon. Ah. Uh, you love these kind of games. I, I enjoy the heck out of it. I, I have the... the... I don't have Avalon, but I have the regular Resistance. Right. With, I will say, one of the perks of being part of the coup Kickstarter was is that uh, two of the kind of roles that exist in Avalon to make Avalon special, uh, because I was part of the coup Kickstarter, I got cards that make... Oh, uh, they do the same thing? But yeah, I, I basically have okay. Merlin and the Assassin for my copy of the Resistance, so... Okay. It saves me the hassle of having to go out and buy a copy of Avalon, which is mostly the same game. So, for the folks who don't know, both of these games, uh, well, Coup, I mean, all of them, they they basically are derivatives of Werewolf. Yeah, they're all hidden role. role, uh, Except Werewolf's gigantic. You can play Werewolf with, I don't know, an unlimited number of people. My my copy of Ultimate Werewolf says something along the lines of 62 people can play it. There you go. Uh, this is a much smaller game, and uh, the basically they're hidden roles, is the, the, the way these games work out. Um, in Resistance Avalon, uh, you were all Knights of the Round Table. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a portion of you, uh, a small number actually, have uh, gone astray. Uh, and you are led by Mordred, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, and some, uh, someone can be, um, I, I want to say Gandalf, but that's so not right. Merlin. Merlin. <laughs> and uh, uh, somebody else oh, is don't Morgana. Don't revoke your geek card. Hey, you know what, dude? Don't even get me started, okay? I, I've actually <laughs> read Lamorte the Art, okay? The, the actual old school wow. version. Yeah. Uh, I have two, but that just makes both of us insane geeks. It, it does. It really, but, like, they didn't know. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> somebody's Morgana, somebody is Percival. I and think that's does, all of the roles. Doesn't doesn't the uh, doesn't Excalibur kind of walk or, or make its way around the table? The Lady too? of the Lake, it, it's, uh, um, it's an optional rule. Okay. And basically what happens is each round... The, the the player essentially goes around and whoever is the player for that turn chooses some number of knights to go out on an adventure and the number is determined by how far down the adventure track you are. The first thing that happens is a up-down vote. Everybody votes, everybody votes in public about whether or not they agree with the team you are sending on this particular mission. If they do, if a majority does, then the mission continues. If they don't, your turn's over, moves on to the next group. So that that really is the first bit of information you can receive 
to determine whether or not somebody is good or bad. By the way, I should probably have mentioned, at the beginning of the game, you do like a heads-up, seven-up kind of deal where certain people get to look at certain things. Uh, bad guys know who bad guys are. Um, good guys know who no one is. Good guys know who no one is except for Merlin. I think. Yeah, Merlin okay. Knows who, okay, Merlin knows who the bad guys are. Percival knows who Merlin and Morgana are. And all of the bad guys know who they are. But they don't necessarily know who Morgana is. And I You're think making this it. sound significantly more complicated than it is. It is, but, it, I mean, pe- people know... And then people don't. There you go. Right. Uh, so if the uh, if the thing happens, there's a secret vote that's taken amongst the people who are on the mission. Uh, if any comes up, if any of those come up as a fail, the mission fails. If all of them come up prop- as a pass, the mission passes. I think that changes a little bit down the line. But basically, what you're doing is you're trying to root out who is who, what's happening, and so it's it's one of those games where uh, people who are very attentive, social, uh, people who are very good at maintaining their demeanor and altering their demeanor are very good at this game. In other words, don't play with pastors. Yeah, I'm going to put it out there. I'm very good at this game. Okay? We rock at this game. <laughs> okay? Our job is to understand people... And specifically, understand people who don't want to tell us things, but kind of know that they should. The, the last time <laughs> I played this was at our uh, our last big game day, on Tabletop Day. And we were playing with a bunch of people who have known me for a good long while. Like, everyone at that table has known me. And the person who was, was setting up the teams looked, at, looked right at me and said, I know that you're a spy. I know it. And she still let me on the mission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh I completely baffled. I was uh, I was a bad guy. And uh just everybody, the entire table was absolute nobody ever once said he's a bad guy. Never once. So just just so you know, don't play with psychologists, don't play with <laughs> pastors, uh, don't play with you know prison guards or master thieves. Um, you <laughs> everybody, know, everybody things. just has a collection of master thieves <laughs> and their friends. <laughs> hey man, I don't know who you hang out with. You come from Jersey. That's true. So you know. All right. Speaking of Jersey, God, look, listen to these transitions. This is professional level stuff. <laughs> The other game I've played is Suburbia. Oh, this uh, is a game that sounds I so mundane and boring, but when you play it... love this game. You play it, it's so amazing. If I were to tell you, oh man, we're going to play this great game. Oh yeah, what's it about? City building. Yeah, uh, I, you know, first off, it has hexes. Luke loves hexes. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. Uh, but... Uh, essentially, you have your own board, a little bit like Steampark, though quite a bit larger. And uh, every round, you're drawing hexes. Uh, you're purchasing hexes. And the hexes are either residential, business, commercial. I think those are the choices. There might be a couple uh, other Residential, commercial, or industrial. Right. 
And, and then there are things like lakes and parks. Like, yeah, right, right. There's some other random stuff. In a way, it's a little... This game reminds me a little bit in terms of the purchasing of Power Grid. A okay. little bit in the sense that there is kind of a line of things you can purchase and the, the closest one is free. But there's not, not a bidding system, but you have a choice uh, and they, they weigh the choices based on cost. Um, and each... Uh, player has a secret goal, which will give them victory points at the end of the game. Uh, and then there are three public goals. Or maybe there were four, I forget. But uh, that anybody can be going for. You know, most money, less money, most parks, less, least, whatever. And uh, so you're building. And now here's what's interesting about the game is that the hexes affect the hexes around them. And every time you place a hex, you not only use the effect of the hex that you placed, but also any adjoining hex. And that continues even farther, because the hexes have traits. So let's say you put down a fast food restaurant. Well, that restaurant, that fast food restaurant, it has that restaurant keyword, so to speak. And there are other buildings, not only in your city, but across the entire game that are triggered any time a restaurant comes into existence. So maybe you have a farm, and it's not even in your town. It's somebody else puts down a restaurant, well, your farm all of a sudden makes you money. And uh, money, or the then basically what you're doing throughout the rest of the game is balancing money, reputation, and population. And uh, as you move up the board of population... <laughs> you lose money and reputation. Uh, you know, I guess people think, oh, this, I used to live here when it was cool, you know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, Hipsteropolis. The game. Right. And so there are, there are a handful of moving factors. And you know, I love games like this that have three or four at most factors that move just a little bit. And everybody is trying to figure out the, the ideal arrangement of those factors. So you might have one guy who knows his city's reputation is just garbage, but he's making a ton of money. And so he can use that money to purchase large items that will give him huge amounts of population, even though his town's reputation is terrible. And he, so he's made that strategic decision. You might have another person who's using a, you know, a lot of lakes and waterfront property and is, is really trying to develop out uh, their population. Another person, or, or their reputation. Uh, another person might be trying to build a city that has got a huge amount of industrial because maybe they have the industrial, uh, you know, they get a, something special for their all, having the most industry uh, at the end of the game. And all of it is, of course, a victory point thing. So you kind of know where people are, but you don't because you don't know what those final uh, missions are going to amount to. Uh, Only got to play the game once. This is a game I would love to play more often. Uh, It's a game, you know, I have this this uh, set of games that I, I are games that I would like to play a lot because I think they would get better as people improve in their skills at these games. Uh, games like Ticket to Ride, Carsacone, um, Power Grid. Uh, this is one of those kind of games, I think. 
Yeah, it definitely. It's. It seems I haven't played a lot of it, but it seems to me that uh, suburbia seems like the kind of thing that you can play and have a blast with, not knowing what you're doing. But there's that next level of the game that's just waiting for you to try it a few more times to really let all the the planning and the rules and the the exploits just kind of gel in your head. And it just seems like it, it, it almost demands future playthroughs. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the, my next chance of playing it, kind of knowing what comes. Oh, one other thing uh, that I, I guess I didn't mention is that you don't always have the same set of tiles. Uh, the tiles are randomized, and you're only using a portion of those tiles in any given game. Now, that doesn't mean that if you haven't played it a bunch of times, you don't know what could be in there, but you never know for sure what is in there uh, because it's a randomized set. Right. And that that's a mechanic that we've seen in other games, too, where to keep things interesting, you either add more or take things away. Yeah. Even down to Love Letter, where, you know, there's, right. there's what, 16 cards, 14 cards, something like that, and you take one of them out. You take one of them out just to, just to give you that surprise of, hey, we don't know what's not in the game anymore. Yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned... Did I mention that uh, we played Love Letter as a family? How, how'd your kids like Love Letter? My eight-year-old is a Love Letter savant. Really? It's ridiculous. I really thought she was going to have... Because there's like a logic thing that has to happen to play oh, Love yeah. Letter. Folks, if you don't know what Love Letter is, um, boy, that's a hard game to describe. So here, here's the, <laughs> we'll, we'll start with the theme. The theme is is that you are all playing as a person who wants to get their love letter to the princess. And you are enlisting the help of different people in the royal court to get your love letter to the princess. So now, some of them are really close to her, and so it's really easy for them to get it to her. And some are really low down, and so it's really hard for them to get it to her. Your goal throughout your turn is to be the last person standing with the highest valued card so that your letter is the one that gets into the hands of the princess. Uh, Likewise, every turn you pick up a card, so that you're basically looking at two cards, you have to play one of them. So they, they do different things. Some of them... Uh, you compare cards with another person. If yours is higher, you're still in the game. If yours is lower, you're out of the game. There's one that says, you basically point at another player and says, I think you're the king. And if they're the king, they're out of the round. So the whole idea is that you're eliminating people from the game that round until you're the last one standing. Right. And I thought this. You know, my kids wanted to play a board game one day, and I was tired, and it was kind of late, and I did not want to break out anything that was going to require setup and time and things like that. And as it happened, Love Letter was sitting on my table, <laughs> so I grabbed it and I pulled it out. And oh, I said, and don't okay. don't you have like one of the fancier versions? Don't you have I, I like do, the I, Legends I, of the Five Rings version? I do. Yeah. So that, I thought that was going to be even worse. Right, because now it's not like a king and a prince. It's like a shogun and a stuff that I I don't even know what it is, right? (laughs) Um, uh, And so I kind of explained the game to them. And 
you know, I kind of expected, to be honest, they were just going to play random cards. Um, you know, maybe have a little bit of, oh, I should do this one, not this one. Uh, and, of course, in any game, it takes a round or two to grok what you got going on, right? My right. littlest one, like, she was making uh, intelligent, strategic moves, and it wasn't random. Because at the end of the game, she gave us this look like, ha-ha, gotcha, punks. Gotcha. <laughs> um, but that's who, what, who my little one is. I mean, she's very... She's sneaky. <laughs> you know, that's... Um, you know, she's very tactical like that. Um, and uh, so she really enjoyed that. I don't remember why I got we got on to... Oh, we were talking about removing cards from... Uh, hexes from Suburbia. Right, but uh, yeah, so uh, enjoyed Suburbia a lot. Looking forward to playing it again. Uh, so we'll see. It, it's one of those games that it's kind of when you first get into the hobby. There are certain games that you're told to get. Like there's the opening set, which is the right. the, the opening salvo of hobby gaming is basically Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, Ticket Carcassonne, Pandemic, Pandemic. Yeah. You're, then you, that's the opening salvo, and after that. You, there, there are other ones that creep in, and Suburbia is like that level two. Yeah, you probably should own Suburbia. See, and you I, know the problem with those are? Nobody ever plays them. I know. Because everybody already had it and played it, and they're done with it. Well, what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us who were just catching up? Like, or, you know, you just weren't, didn't happen to be in the hobby because, you know, you were doing stuff when those games came out. I, I wish that people did a better job, and I, and I, you know, I always am bringing old games to game night. Um, but it's just like anything. Everything has, you know, some historic time frames to it. Um, and it, there's nothing, it doesn't mean that what comes now is better than what come, came then. It just, that had its moment. And, uh, you know, things exist in the popular mind. And they, they're there for a time, and then they're gone. And they don't come back until maybe, you know, 40 years later when we start wearing the same clothes again. Well, uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. And... <laughs> <laughs> there's, like, there's one game. I don't think it's out yet. I think it comes out next month here in the States. It is a Japanese game called Machi Koro. And from the look of it, basically what it is is that it's there's there's dice rolling, so there is a random, you know, element of luck. But you're per- basically purchasing... Uh, shops and locations and stuff. You're basically building yourself a little village. And depending on what you roll, that based on the cards that you have, that gets you certain resources. Mechanically speaking, it's Catan without the board. It's gather up resources by rolling this die and collecting this stuff. There's There are certain cards that let you uh, collect resources on other players' turns and steal from other players. It's basically Catan, and I honestly think that it will be a much simpler, faster version of Catan. That being said, I'm not getting rid of Catan. Okay, so you know, mechanically, I kind of, I kind of prefer that. It's a lot I, less. I could dig that. It's a lot less setup. It's a lot quicker game. You know, you're not. You're not so much having that take that I got that road before you did. I I in a way it would basically be the next gen Catan. But that being said, I have no desire to get rid of Catan. No. 
It's it's the granddaddy of hobby gaming. I I can't not have it. And yeah, I I think that there, that there has to be a point where we where we retain some of these older games. Uh, and I love the fact that you know uh, Ticket to Ride is just getting its special edition out. Right. And I don't know if you've seen it. I have. But well, I haven't is, actually seen it. Seen it. I've seen it, is, it like it on the internet. It is gorgeous. Like all the trains are are molded. They're not. Right. They're, they're unique. They're not like I have the same train as you are, but mine's red. This. I mean, every train has a different personality, and the board is huge, and it just the new art. It, everything is just amazing on this thing, and I hope. That uh, and I'm sure that the company hopes this as well, but I really hope that that kind of inspires people to go back to Ticket to Ride because it really is a light, fun game that's a blast to play with people who aren't even necessarily that hardcore into gaming. Yeah, well, I, I've said it before. I will, at this point, at least hold to it. It is the, I believe it's the best board game ever made. I wouldn't no. go that far, but I would definitely put it up there. It's number one on my list. Um, because of all the reasons you just said, um, <clears throat> but it, you know, it, even with Ticket to Ride, there's like 87 different boards for this game now. Oh yeah, you know, and it is, and that's fine. I get it. That's part of life. Life evolves. Life changes, and you know. Our generation, maybe every generation, I don't know. I've not been part of any other generation other than ours. <laughs> uh, you know, we are really into this whole rapid change thing. Right. You know, it's funny. Uh, every once in a while, I will, for whatever reason, have a, a reason to pay attention to what's happening at Dallas Seminary, the seminary we both went to. Yes. And... Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the times it's not for very happy reasons. Uh, sometimes we'll have a professor pass away or whatever. Um, but it's interesting because the the questions they're dealing with at seminary today are completely different than the questions we were dealing with 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And... It's not that our theology is changing. Folks, if you don't know anything about Dallas Seminary, their theology does not change. Ever. Not ever. Never. Right? It's just what the question that happens to be in the popular mindset. And if you've been part of any evangelical church for any number of years, you'll know that the, the issue du jour, so to speak, changes rapidly. And we're changing rapidly along with those issues, and even outside of the church, even just in life in general. Um, But one thing that we have gotten kind of bad at is remembering our history. Um, Those of you who know me know I am a lore junkie. Yeah, you you make me look like a lore amateur, and I'm I'm pretty hardcore myself. And by lore, I don't mean like, like the lore of... Dungeons and Dragons, or uh, you know, the lore of well, Star Wars, yes, but uh, you know, um, <laughs> similar, but not. I, the same. I mean, like our actual human lore, like our history. You know, like I could ha- sit down and have like a fifty-hour conversation about 
Robin Hood and the stories of Robin Hood and where the stories of Robin Hood came from and who wrote the stories of Robin Hood and who Robin Hood might have been and when the various characters came into the Robin Hood mythology. I, I mean, I got it all, okay? I love this stuff. Um, I can also tell you all about blacksmithing and all about uh, different woodworking skills and when they were used and what life was like on the American frontier. And I play the banjo because that's the kind of weird guy I am, right? I love history. In fact, even in, uh, in my Bible work, my emphasis was on Bible manners and customs. It was on the lore. It was on the life, the history of what was happening. I didn't. I could care less about the theological issues that everybody was talking about. I want to know all the weird history and arcana and stuff. Um, so for me, I, it's a very sensitive issue. But I love knowing the history. I love embracing those games. And you know, we talk about tickets to ride like it's an old game, man. Well, the it's hobby, like ten years old, man. Yeah, the <laughs> hobby in itself is probably. I want to say the most well-known games. I mean, there were clearly stuff before this, but I mean, the hobby is basically twenty years old, something like that. Twenty, maybe thirty. But it's you're basically yeah, looking. Ticket to Ride came out in two thousand four, man. It's ten yeah. years old, and we're talking about it like like it's ancient, well, like it's venerable. The the board gaming, the hobby board gaming scene. You ever seen those those charts of technology? How it inches up a little right, bit, inches right. up a little bit, and, yeah. and then shoots up. Right. That is exactly what gaming has done. It's like, oh look, there's a neat thing. Oh look at that cute card trick, Settlers of Catan. Whoosh. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> look what those German folks are doing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, and the thing is, is that. There's a lot there, and I get it. People who are new to the hobby, there's no reason to go back and find those things. Because there's so much new good stuff coming out, and you can be perfectly happy and content. But I find it kind of hard to believe that if somebody got into the hobby right now, it is very likely they would never play Ticket to Ride. I, I don't think so. You don't? No, here, I think I, I might be splitting. Okay, hairs Ticket here. to Ride might have been a little bit of an extreme well, example. Right, here, here's what I'm thinking, though. I don't think they would own Ticket to Ride. And I, that might be splitting hairs with some folks, but here's why I don't think they would own it. Because for the same price, you can get newer, crazier stuff that, you know, has been building on the kind of right. hype train that the game. Yeah. Made. Like, you can get that stuff for basically the cost of a game of Ticket to Ride. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a it's a good, strong, logical argument. I, I grant you. <laughs> my, uh, my debate skills are strong. <laughs> well, I mean, but think about it in terms of... Okay, so let's go back to our education. Yes. You and I. We went to the seminary, and we sat there, and our very first year, I'm pretty sure it ever... I think we were kind of... There were at least some of our classes that were mandated. You had to take them in certain order. Yes. And, of course, in Theology 101, Intro to Theology, whatever they, whatever Whatever they felt like calling it that year. Yeah. Prolegomena, whatever. Um, fancy words. Uh, <laughs> it was... You had to take it first. I mean, I took it my first semester. Dude, 
there were so many things that happened theological issues heresies uh, questions deep deep philosophical questions about the nature of God about the nature of Jesus that we don't even know existed it's so far outside of our realm of comprehension you know we pretend sometimes like everything is built upon the stuff in the past and maybe it is but that doesn't mean we have any idea about how it was built right you know it's kind of the cliche the cliche you know uh, apocalyptic thing right if the whole world falls apart and we lose the internet we're screwed because nobody actually knows how to do anything <laughs> right when you can't google something we're all going to die you know and it's the same thing you think about our faith and our faith is is the product of 2,000 years of people talking and often fighting about uh, issues, many of which we don't understand. We don't know any better than we do the, the I don't know, the way radios work, you know, or how to mill something, right? Yeah, there are a couple of guys out there who can still mill things at their mill with their big wheel in the river. But if we had to build a mill from scratch, all of our stuff would be millless. There's no way we could do it. Right? And I think that if we had to build our theology from scratch today, there's no way we could do it. Oh, we could do it. It would just be wrong. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. You know, and it's the same way. It's like, if people were going to just jump in and build a board game today, without all of that history of board games board game experiences it would be monopoly <laughs> right well and that's you know i i try to keep myself on a writing schedule and and depending on uh if we get outside people writing for the site or not you know i, I try once a week to get something out there so because of this i have a lot of backup article ideas stewing around in my head sure and one of them is the idea of we need to stop playing gatekeeper to what makes somebody a gamer and we need to stop hating on people who don't like the things – who like the things that we don't like. And I'm entitling it I Hate Monopoly <laughs> because I'm, I'm very outspoken of the fact that I dislike that game a lot. However, as bitter and I can't believe we're still playing this game as I am about Monopoly – I cannot deny its driving force in an entire generation of people playing board games. If I were to, to say, name for me one Milton Bradley game, I promise you, people who have never picked up a game will tell you Monopoly. For sure. And you can't deny its place in our history books. And I think sometimes we, you know, we, we jump on the cult of the new, and I have no problem with that. I like new things as much as the next guy. I, heck, I'm going to Gen Con. I promise you, I will, be bringing, <laughs> I will be bringing home at least one new thing, one shiny bit of awesomeness. I don't know what it is yet, but it'll be something. Right. But I think, I think to embrace the current and the future without going back to that past, I mean, heck, you want to talk... You want to talk about, about how this impacts faith. I mean, we do that all the time. We think that the make and break of Christianity is 
you know, issue A, B, or C. And if you look back at the early church fathers and the guys who were writing like a decade after Christ went back and ascended, they don't, they didn't even care about this, this stuff that we think is the end all and be all of the faith. They didn't even care. I mean, it just, it wasn't, had it been the issue, they would have cared. They would, right. What you're not saying is that it's not something that should be cared about. It just didn't happen to be the thing that was in their consciousness at the time. It was not on their radar to use the vernacular. Right. And, and so, and at the same point, stuff that they cared about, we don't. And I think that, I think that is also something that, that we need to be reminded of our histories. You know, I think that's kind of where we're going with this as we, you know, head, you know, barreling down towards the end of this episode. I think we're, we're really reveling in, in the histories. As much as we talk about the new stuff and, you know, started off talking about new role-playing systems and new card games and new board games, I think that stuff has to be built on this foundational history. I think that to divorce ourselves from the the fact that we are part of a body that has been going for thousands of years and people have been discussing this and pondering this and and desperately seeking god for thousands of years and we are not the end all and be all of it there will be people after us there have been people before us so we need to kind of touch base with those people and what they've what they struggled with right. what they wrestled with you know if i was going to invite somebody into the board gaming world i really want them to play catan i really want them to play ticket to ride you know i want to encourage them even before they pay other things to play these games and it's not because they're simple games it's because they're foundational games right they're important games right and in the same way, we, well, I won't say we, most of our evangelical faith traditions, we don't do that. We don't invite people into the historical, foundational conversations that have built our faith. Yeah, I haven't been a huge, like, recent study in church history. This is mostly due to timing and the fact that you know, I can only study so many things at one given time. So you do have to be selective. But there are guys who have been doing some interesting stuff in the past, and we kind of just look over them. And, well, and, I, and please understand that we're not just talking about, like, Obscura from 300 AD. No, no. no, no. Talking about big, huge names in the, the fields of theology. Well, and... And there are there are ways of even doing. For the, let's just take theology out of the equation, because sometimes theology can be a big scary word. But there are spirituality and spiritual practices that people were doing, and these are people. Okay, you have to understand. We think that we are the amazing missionaries in the world. Not, not even, even close. Kind of, not even kind of. Not even close. Columba and his buddies, man, they changed the world. Yep. And their spirituality was very different than ours. Not wrong, not heathen, not uh, unorthodox, but just different. Because the social situations that 
that led them to their faith and their faith experience were different than the faith, the social situations that we are experiencing our faith in. But we can learn a ton from hanging out with these guys. And we'll get to hang out with them someday, but we can hang out with them a little bit now by doing some study. Uh, you're you're a huge, you know. Well, let's just use your wording. You're a huge lore nerd. I am. I'm. I'm a. Well, in comparison to you, I'm strictly amateur status lore nerd. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start out with one, but I just want you to be kind of percolating this as I mention this guy. If you could think of one person, because we want to give people something that they can grab hold of. We're talking like high okay. and lofty here. Right. I want to give. Something that they can go to their local library and find. Okay. My my guy that I would say that is a very it's a well known name when it comes to doing theology and doing church, but I, I at the same point I'm pretty confident that there will be people listening right now who have probably never heard of him. The man known as Desiderius Erasmus. Okay. Erasmus. Yeah, I'm guessing there's a lot of people. Right, but at the same point, this dude was, he was a counterpoint to a lot of the big names that brought our faith to where it is right now. He was in and among them and and kind of creating a a, a whole philosophy that kind of merged old world and new world, and I loved it. He, He kind of coined the term Christian humanism. Basically, his understanding that the things that we create are a reflection of God and to to separate what we do and who we are and what we like and what we participate in the the art that we make the the things that we build the stuff that we do to separate that from our faith is ludicrous he he really had a, a high view he had a high view of God there's nothing that said that he wouldn't. He had a, an incredibly high view of God, but at the same point, he also had a high view of humanity as being made in the image of God. And uh, his he, stuff is awesome. He was, for folks who don't know, he was a re- kind of a Renaissance kind of a guy in yeah. terms of time period. You know, not quite getting into this sort of modern age in the 16, 17, he was more probably like 1500, give or take. I'm guessing. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm horrible with dates. So uh, I'm more about age and, and as far as era, yes. Right, he, era. He, there, he you there you go. There you go. He yeah. kind of fit in between what was and what was coming. Exactly. You're you're dead right. And he would have been, you know, kind of the end of the Dark Ages, so to speak. You know, right in the Reformation and Renaissance kind of period, right at the beginning of all that. So you, you, you wanted me to to throw out a person. Yeah. Um, I, I actually thought of one and then I thought of another. So I'll just give you both. Cause do, do it. Heck? Because we want, uh, we want to, we want to embrace the history here. So, okay. So one, let's talk about history and then I'll talk a little bit more about one that just happens to be more meaningful to me. So in terms of history, the guy I'm going to go with is Thomas Aquinas. Well, yeah, you, you can't not mention Aquinas. Okay. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was like the Aristotle or Socrates of Christianity. Uh, basically, I, I mean, you could almost say the dude invented theology. Now, obviously, people have been thinking about God forever. But in terms of like, okay, let's sit down and write it all down. The structuralized And, and make, sense of the, of... make sense of the whole thing. Uh, he's the guy who did that and, uh, of course, wrote 
the, the first theology book, essentially, Summa Theologica, or just Summa, depending. It's incredibly dense. Oh, this is uh, not light reading. And so I would not necessarily encourage people to read this. You might want to read something about it. Yeah, read read about him and about it before yeah. you tackle it. Right, like something with quotes and things yeah. like that. But the one that was actually really way more significant for me is a guy called Blaise Pascal. Ah. And uh, Pascal was actually not a theologian. He was a mathematician. Um, and really not a very spiritual guy. And, uh, you know, I think everybody at the time was kind of a religious person, but, you know, I mean, it just wasn't his thing, uh, until one day he had this, well, technically they're called ecstatic experiences. Uh, Eureka moment. Right. A very powerful, overwhelming experience of God. And uh, here's what we know of that experience. He wrote down some things that he kept in his jacket. And when they finally discovered what it was, I think all it said was fire, fire, fire. That was his experience of God. And uh, he was a mathematician, and so that, that was his gig. I mean, he did go on to then write about God. But, you know, he's the kind of guy who was a lot like me. I was a very scientific very heady kind of a person who then all of a sudden had this really radical encounter with God and that turned around my life. So, of course, I I resonate with him. Um, And, you know, those of you who know me, who know my weird, like, love of all things fantasy and magic and things like that, I I am prone to the weird ecstaticness. Um, And so, for me, that was a really cool experience, especially coming up in a world where everybody was very kind of conservative and straight about their Christianity. And to have this, like, you know, this guy who was like, you know, fire. I was like, whoa, okay. That's not, (laughs) I've not heard anybody say fire about Christianity yet. This is new. (laughs) And, uh, uh, so yeah, I really, uh, that's the one I'd point people to. And, and this is just scratching the surface. I mean, if you, if you date, (laughs) I mean, it, it goes without saying, but I do want to to bring that up because of the fact that, especially in a lot of the modern American church experience, we're so into what's going on now and what people are talking about now right. that a lot of these, these concepts of church history, we, we don't think about it. We don't think about where we've come from. We don't think about what has been discussed. Uh, we don't think about the fact that there are... You know, I, I said earlier that some things that they cared about we don't, and some things that we do they didn't. But at the same point, there's also times when you go, "Man, no one is dealing with this the way we are. No one struggles with this the way we are." And you look, and from the very beginning, from the word "go," people have been struggling and, and wrestling with these concepts. Well, for sure. And and so you know, it reminds you that we are not just kind of floating in the breeze of existence here. We we come from roots that dig deep in our history. And I, I think that we need to be reminded of that. Absolutely. And again, we're not trying to say that there's anything wrong with the fact that we are people of the moment. Oh, yeah. It's the only kind of people we can be. But there is a great value in digging deeper and finding more uh, that's out there. And uh, you know what's cool? 
I had to go to seminary and read ginormous books and have a church history professor who marched through the classroom with his gigantic feet, scaring the life out of all of us. <laughs> For those of you who went to DTS, you'll get that. Um, you can just go to the Wikipedia, and it knows everything. Yep. Awesome. So, folks, uh, we want to encourage you to head over to Wikipedia and learn some things about Jesus. Or you can also head over to Inroads. I'm about to say, I bet you that's a, a phrase that you never thought you'd have to say. Yeah. Head over to Wikipedia and learn about Jesus. Uh, or go to inroadsministries.com and uh, read some articles. Find out what we're talking about. You can go to the tavern. You can find all of these kind of things at inroadsministries.com. And if you really want to get specific, slash contact. Uh, you'll find out how to connect with us and uh, how to play Hearthstone with us, maybe. If that's what you're enjoying Dude. doing. Blizzard Blizzard locked my account because I fumbled with my password one day. I I'm I I might be just done with Hearthstone. Not because I don't like Hearthstone. It's a fantastic game. I'm just sick and tired of dealing with Blizzard. <laughs> well, pray for him, folks. Pray for him. <laughs> uh and so uh, as always we're thankful that you're hanging out with us and remind you that God is the game master and no matter how the dice fall, the game plays on.